everyone, Bethany here. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you about something new we are doing with our Patreon. As you may know, Patreon is a place to donate and support creators, like us, who bring you cool stuff, like this podcast. We'd like to raise enough money to pay our editors and producers and to upgrade some of our equipment so we can bring you our dulcet tones every week. As part of that, we are redoing our Patreon tiers, and now, when you donate, you'll get the option to receive awesome stuff, like Science for the People stickers, magnets, mugs, and more. Not only that, if you support us for $5 per month or more, we'll send you a special birthday card. It won't be on your birthday. Instead, it will be on the birthday of a scientist we think is worth knowing about. The card will include custom art of the scientist and their work, and a special memorable note about their contribution to the world. Who's the scientist? That's the big surprise. To get the first one, all you have to do is sign up by May 15th and support us for $5 or more each month. And really, $5 for four hours of podcasts and some swag? That's a really good deal. Thanks. Now, on to the show. The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're time-traveling to the heroic age of medicine. We're going to talk with Nils Hansen about the advent of anesthesia and how it changed the world of surgery. But first, we're going to venture into the laudable pus and blood-coated world of Lindsay Fitzharris and her new book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. Hold on to your breakfast. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, science writer at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. When you think of surgery, what do you think of? Probably pain, probably fear. But you may also think of sterile white walls, bright lights in an operating theater, doctors in white coats, everything made to look as clean as possible. Surgery has always involved pain and fear, but it has not always involved that sterile, clean operating theater. In the 1800s, doctors did not know that was even necessary. They didn't know that their instruments needed to be clean. They didn't wash their hands. They had no idea that infections were caused by bacteria and called pus laudable. But in the mid-1800s, that began to change. And a large part of the cleanup of surgery was due to Joseph Lister. Here to tell us about it is science and medical historian Lindsay Fitzharris, author of the new book, The Butchering Art, Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grisly World of Victorian Medicine. Lindsay, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. I'm sorry it's taken so long to connect up, but I'm really excited to have this chat with you. No worries. Now, you have a degree in the history of science and medicine. What got you into studying the history aspect specifically? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. Um, I, I've always been interested in history. I mean, I remember in Chicago going to the Museum of Science and Industry and being more fascinated with what they called the olden time street. They had this like street where you could walk down and it was all uh, made to look like it was, I think, turn of the 20th century. Um, and so I was just always really interested in that. But I'm all, I also have an interest in science and medicine as well. Um, and when I went to Illinois Wesleyan, where I did my undergraduate, I, I was just really lucky to have um, a professor at this very small university who specialized in science history. And he introduced me to the subject, and I fell in love with it. And I said, where can I go to learn more about this? And um, we, we set it up so that I did an abroad program at Oxford University. I went over to Oxford. I went more down this rabbit hole of science history. And I went back to do my master's and my PhD, and I just absolutely loved it. So it kind of just randomly happened. But I've always been interested in, in history um, since I was a little girl. And you also tend to like, well, 
<laughs> in your YouTube series and also in the book, you tend to like the more hmm, grisly aspects of science history. It's it's true. I mean, I I guess um it's funny because I was just filming something um with my friend Alex Anstey who shoots my YouTube series, and we were in a graveyard yesterday, and I was telling this story about how as a little girl I used to drag my grandmother from cemetery to cemetery hunting ghosts. We used to like to go ghost hunting, but my grandmother was very much of a generation that you would go to a cemetery and. And um, you would you would um, pay respect to the relatives. And she would tell me these wonderful stories about these people who lived in the past. So I think on the surface, a lot of people look at it and say, oh, you were a really strange child and you were obsessed with death. But for me, graveyards were never creepy places. They were they were places of love where people would go and remember their relatives and talk about the past and what it was like to live in the past. And that really sparked my interest in history as well. Um, but it is true that I kind of, uh, you know, shift towards the more gruesome aspects of history, especially online. And um, I like to say, you know, I've done some a lot of articles and um, YouTube videos on uh, human skin books, for instance, and uh, these books that were bound in human skin in the 19th century for various reasons. Um, a criminal was uh, executed and they used the skin to bind a book about his crimes. And um, I like to say that um, I, I tell people, come for the skin book and stay for the history, because it's true, we're very morbidly curious. And so I think that pulls an audience in. And hopefully, once they come to my page, or they come to my YouTube series, or my blog, or whatever, they actually learn something about the context of these kind of grisly aspects of the past. I was actually really hoping it was just the phrase laudable pus, because I just <laughs> can't get over the phrase laudable pus. I love it. I know they could, you know, surgeons back then. Um, it for for people listening in who haven't read the butchering art, um, surgeons would call pus laudable, and the reason why was because they didn't understand germs, and it was it, more often than not a, an injury or a wound would begin to separate and pus would form, and so it happened so frequently that surgeons actually thought that pus was necessary for the process of healing. So they actually. Uh, encouraged and, and uh, were happy to see pus when it started to form, not realizing that it's a, a, a form of infection. Well, I've decided that my next Baroque quartet is going to be called Laudable Pus. Laudable Pus, yeah. Laudable Pus, I love it. Um, now, I wanted to ask about what made you fixate specifically about writing a book about Joseph Lister? What really appealed about him? Well, that's so funny. I, this book um, was was sort of born in, in a time when I was going through really difficult divorce and I was um, facing deportation um, from Britain as a result. I didn't have any money um, and all I could do was write. They took my passport. Um, my situation was being um, decided in courts. And I thought, I have to write a book. And um, and it should be a character-driven story because that's what I excel in. And um, I actually originally was going to write it about the surgeon Robert Liston, who opens the butchering art, because he's such a character. He was 6'2 in the Victorian period, which was quite tall. He was very strong. He was the fastest knife in the West End. He could hold you down with his left arm, and he could take off your leg in under 30 seconds. And I thought, this guy is all theater, and um, he's, he's an amazing character, but he doesn't really... Um, do anything to to transform 
um, uh, surgery or medicine. Um, he does perform the first ever operation under ether in Britain, but it's not his discovery. He only um, hears about it from America and tests it out here. And so that's how the book actually opens. But when I was reading about that moment, the great Robert Liston going into this theater in December um, of 1846, um, he he comes into this theater and he says he doesn't believe ether is going to work. He calls it the Yankee Dodge. And, um, and it works. And it's an amazing moment. And I think that when people, if they ever think about medical history, they think of the moment when anesthesia is discovered as the moment that surgery is transformed. But actually, surgery becomes a lot more dangerous right immediately after that, because the surgeon is more willing to pick up the knife. Um, and as a, but he doesn't understand that germs exist. So as a result, these operations become slow moving executions for the patients. So I really wanted to focus on that. And the most amazing part of that story about Ether and about Robert Liston here in Britain was that in the audience that day was a 17-year-old Joseph Lister. And I thought, well, I couldn't write the movie script better than that. And so the, the book should open like that. But when I when I did, um, was doing my research and discovered Lister was in the audience, I thought, oh, yeah, Joseph Lister, he's he's really important. And as an academic, he's written on, you know, I, I'm aware that academics write on him quite frequently. I assumed that someone had done this book. Um, and I kind a joke that you know it's a writer's fear that you go out on book tour and someone says did you did you know about this you know other book that was written you know three years ago um someone already beat you to the punch but nobody had written it and um well you know it just it's a story it's so important um the new york times when they reviewed the book said it was a paradigm so so obvious that it's hardly believable that it needed shifting in the first place because we now live in this this world where we know germs exist um, but of course, there was a time when people didn't know germs existed. And, and Lister received a lot of backlash as well for his his ideas. Well, I have to say, uh, first of all, I, I'm a little sad it's not about Liston, because man, <laughs> hold you down with his left with your left hand and take your leg off with your right. That's what I look for in a man. Yeah, yeah you know? I know. <laughs> when we get the movie off the ground, Liston's going to be a really fun character to bring to life on screen. Um, because it, he is he is such a character. He dies quite young, actually. Um, I believe he dies in his late. 40s or early 50s um, of an aneurysm. But he is a character. And a lot of these people around Lister in this medical world in the 19th century were characters. I mean, there were doctors and surgeons who would fight duels over, you know, various uh, points of discussion, you know, they would disagree and they fight a duel. And so when Lister comes onto the scene, um, the people who win, you know, so called arguments about medicine about what's the best procedure often um, are just the best debaters. There wasn't really any kind of methodology in place. Um, but Lister comes on and he has a microscope, which is a big part of um, the story in the butchering art. And the way that he writes up his case notes as well, it's like you're looking over his shoulder and he's demonstrating to you how to do things. And this was very different um, to how other doctors wrote um, about their work at this time. So Lister is very much a pioneer in the scientific method. And he's, you know, explaining and showing he's uh, bringing evidence to what he's saying. He's changing his ideas. And in fact, he changes his methodologies quite, um, quite often enough that doctors criticize him and say, well, see, you were wrong the first time around. Um, so it's just, he's just a very interesting character. Um, and he's sort of at the eye of the storm. Um, and, you know, it's a period when a lot of patients are dying and um, there's no solution to this problem in the hospitals. And he just happens to be, you know, the right man at the right time. Now, you mentioned that you had a lot of primary documents 
Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, about the research that goes into writing a book like this. Um, where do you get primary sources like that? How do you do research about a guy who existed in the 1800s? Well, I mean, Lister lived into his own fame, which was really good for me because a lot of the documents um, surrounding him, letters, for instance, that he wrote between him and his father, all of that was preserved um, because people recognized that he was important even in his own lifetime. But weirdly, as he neared the end of his life, he wanted a lot of his personal correspondence to be destroyed because he wanted his story to be told only through his science. But lucky for me, that didn't happen. Um, and I think that's the power, hopefully, of the story that I tell, because Lister, it's not, nothing's created in a vacuum. Um, and he's not only just building on the theories of other scientists and other doctors around him, but also he has this amazing relationship with his father, who encourages him to go back into medicine after he has a mental breakdown. So there's a lot of wonderful moments about the people around him that make him who he is. And I think that we couldn't really understand Lister's significance without knowing that part of the story. But to get back to uh, the research materials, there's tons of stuff in um, Britain. I live over here in the UK. Um, the Welcome Collection is an amazing medical history collection. They have they have a lot of stuff um, related to Lister, including even um, his microscope and uh, actual you know tangible objects that he used. Um, the Royal College of Surgeons has stuff. There's a lot of stuff up in Scotland. So I was really lucky. The biggest challenge for me was because he lived into his own fame, because there's so many documents, I had to whittle this story down to, you know, it, its fastest paced narrative. And also keeping in mind that my readers, um, my target readers are not going to be specialists. They're not going to necessarily have a PhD in the history of medicine. So I wanted that story to be both understandable and interesting enough to keep turning the page. And that was what was so hard is taking this like just massive wealth of material and saying, okay, well, this part of the story maybe isn't something that needs to go in the book. Um, and there was a lot of stuff that had to be discarded, really. And you mentioned that he did, he lived into his own fame. And he made a lot of effort to be remembered only for his medical accomplishments. Why, why was he like kind of fixated on that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it was just a very, I think it was a very Victorian sensibility that his private life had really nothing to do with, with, uh, with what, what his science was, which was incorrect, uh, I would argue, but I think he was just a deeply private person. He wasn't looking for fame either. Um, and there's sort of Lister mania. In fact, I'm actually participating in an event in Glasgow um, in two months called Lister mania. And they have an actor who's going to dress as Joseph Lister and interview me on the stage. So that should be interesting. But people still, I mean, especially over here, um, the UK audience really know Lister's name um, and are quite familiar with it in a way that they aren't familiar with it in the US. Um, and I have to remind Americans that if you know Lister's name, but you don't know why, it's because of the product Listerine. Um, he went to Philadelphia in 1876 um, to convince American surgeons of the need to adopt antisepsis and the need to accept germ theory. And while he was there, there was a man in the audience who was inspired to create this product and name it after him. He actually was a little bit miffed that this thing existed. And it wasn't a mouthwash at first. It was um, more commonly used to cure gonorrhea, um, which I tell 
tell people it's a little life hack for you. Just throw some gonorrhea, uh, throw some Listerine on your gonorrhea. Um, but he, uh, there's other things that um, uh, spring out of this. Um, everybody starts going crazy over carbolic acid, which is the antisepsis that he uses. So there's sort of this carbolic acid mania. There's even a song, uh, the carbolic acid ragtime in the 19th century. So people really kind of go nuts over this. And, and he um, is, is, is held up as um, the champion of um, germ theory and of antisepsis, but he didn't want to live into that fame. So I think the reason why he really wanted his private life to stay, stay private was because there was so much interest in him at the end of his life. And he probably just feared that, you know, this would all um, come out and it was, it was his private life. And it, so I joke that he probably hate my book because um, I, I wrote this sort of, you know, inner chamber uh, of, of Joseph Lister's life, but I really feel that it's integral to the story. And I think um, we need to focus on um, in this day and age, not just the science and the truth that prevails, but you know, how does that come about? And a lot of that is the deeply personal stories behind it. Well, I have to say that if I were him, I can see why, like, having something named after you that's used to cure an STD would be kind yeah. of a turn off. Like, you Not know, yeah, <laughs> I could see that too. Yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't the best thing for him, but like, what are you saying? <laughs> um, but it does seem um, throughout the book, you, you, it seems like you did have a little bit of a struggle finding some of those personal details. Um, did you have trouble finding some of those personal details? Where did you get them? Yeah. Well, the, the one thing that was hard was his marriage um, to Agnes there was a lot of there were gaps there i mean there there are things that exist that tell us a lot about agnes in certain ways and there was this choice like do i go down that rabbit hole and and bring her to the foreground um my decision with my editor was that we really wanted to focus on lister and pasture um who features prominently in the middle parts of the book um but agnes his wife they had a very close relationship and she actually um was responsible and i talk a little bit about this in the book for really kind of keeping him on track because he would get lost in his research um many times and there's stories about him you know having to present a lecture in an hour and he hasn't even started to make notes and agnes was always kind of there helping with that um transcribing his notes and keeping him um focused there's a question as to why they didn't have children it seems like they probably anticipated that they were going to have children because they buy a house and they talk about the nursery um, the room that would be the nursery, but then children don't emerge. But th this is this is a Victorian times, and there's just nothing really out there that explains why they couldn't have children or whether um, they had, you know, whether this was a source of pain, which I'm assuming it was. Um, there's just a few little glimpses of it in letters um, from Joseph Lister to his father about this. And there was this suggestion that Agnes had suffered from some kind of childhood illness that may have made her infertile. But again, I couldn't really find any evidence of what that um, that sickness would have been. Um, so it's frustrating because there's limitations. And of course, with a book like this, it reads like a novel. And um, I feel like I have a, you know, a novelist instinct, but you have to stick to the the story as it as it's known in the um, in the records. And so it's difficult like that you can't expand into further areas of his private life when you would want to. All right. 
Let's have some fun with the grisly stuff. What was <laughs> surgery like in the early 1800s? <laughs> Go! Now we, get, now we get to the testicles flying off and, uh, you know. Oh, this, yes. This is the stuff that it's funny. Um, a, a lot of, uh, reporters focus on too. And I don't mind because I think, you know, it gets people into that story. They're gonna, they want the blood and guts. What's funny to me is when people review the book and they say, oh, it was too, it was too gruesome. And you think it's called the butchering art, you know, what we're you expecting when you bought this book? Um, and also, I like to point out to people that whenever they think that the descriptions maybe went a little too far, it's not actually usually me describing it. It's it's contemporary records. So this is how people were conceptualizing their own experiences and, and how they um, saw the period. So you get these stories, for instance, about... Um, uh, Hector Berlioz, who was, who ended up being a uh, composer, but he went to medical school early on and he walks into the dead house, what they call the dissection room. And he remembers the skulls gaping and the rats nibbling on the bleeding vertebrae. And he just has these amazing descriptions. And he's actually so mortified by this experience. He, he runs, he jumps out the window and he runs, um, out of there. He says as though death in all of his army is on his heels. Um, and so it's, it's just this incredible, um, experience. And I, I like to remind medical students or doctors today that going into medicine in the 19th century, in the early 19th century would have been very dangerous because they didn't understand germs. This was a time before mass vaccinations. It was a time certainly before antibiotics. So a lot of medical students actually die um, because they're exposed to various diseases or they cut their hand during a dissection and they call these pinprick cuts and um, you would die from a bacterial infection. In fact, Charles Darwin's uh, uncle by the same name is dissecting a child and he cuts his hand and he's dead within 48 hours of, of some kind of septic condition. So it was a very dangerous time to go into medicine. And for the patient, it obviously sucked. Um, you know, this is before anesthesia and before an understanding of germs. So you go into the operating theater, you'd be fully awake. Um, the operating theater would be filled to the rafters with people and not just medical students or other doctors, but sometimes just ticketed spectators who came to see um, the the whole uh, thing play out, the life and death struggle play out on the stage before them because the Victorians were obsessed with this. And um, a lot of times people ask me, were the Victorians more morbid than us? But I think, you know, I have 130,000 people on my Instagram page. I think we're still pretty morbid. Um, and, uh, and I like to remind people, too, that the Victorians were obsessed with science. So a lot of them were coming to the operating theater to see the latest operation or the latest um, invention or discovery like ether. Um, and so it wasn't really just to do with, with the patient or seeing the bloodbath that kind of ensued. Um, but it would be wrong to say that these surgeons um, relished in it necessarily. You get a lot of descriptions of surgeons being very nervous before they go into the operating theater, even vomiting um, before they go in, because you can imagine this person's life is in your hands and they're going to be struggling against your knife. And any small slip of it, you know, could result in death. So there was a ton of pressure on the surgeons themselves. Um, and so as theatrical or um, is, is sort of, I don't want to say funny, but, you know, as entertaining as, as these stories are to us now that we live in a totally different uh, time period, I think that, you know, it's, uh, it's good to remind people that these were real patients, they were real surgeons as well who had to do this, and it could be quite an awful spectacle. Yeah, and it's interesting because, you know, as you mentioned, 
there was a lot of spectacle. It was the heroic age of medicine, you know, fast knives flying everywhere. And actually, in the context of this, Lister did something really relatively quiet. Um, Yes. So can you talk a little bit about what Lister's contributions to medicine really were? Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm Again, it's like, when I think about the period, I think about a lot of color and frenzy, as you say, the knives flying, the showmanship, the time me gentlemen as the surgeons would walk in and try to compete with one another. And then you have Lister, this Quaker, this somber figure, who actually didn't really want to go into medicine at one point, but is kind of pushed back into this path and thank goodness he was. Um, and the way that he revolutionized medicine is a, it is a quiet revolution in, in the sense that once he discovers germ theory through Louis Pasteur's work and he decides that that is indeed what is causing these septic conditions and he develops antisepsis and he knows that he's right, there is a lot of pushback. Um, but he decides that he can't necessarily change the older generation because, again, you know, essentially what he was telling these, these surgeons was that they had been killing their patients all along. And I think that was a hard pill for them to swallow because they were trying to save people's lives. And what he was also asking these showmen um, who had grown up, you know, as Liston had the fastest knife in the West End, he was telling them to slow down, to look at surgery as a meticulous, slow moving process rather than, you know, get in and get out as fast as you can. So what he did was he turned to the younger generation and he started to change their minds. And they went out into the world and they became known as the Listerians. And so it's it's almost like a religious movement. And the way that he convinced them as well was through a lot of ceremony and ritual. Like he would bring in this um, carbolic spray and it was all very solemn. And he was a very solemn figure. And they would, they would follow him into the operating theater and they would spray the air with the antisepsis. And there was a lot of kind of almost ritual involved in preparing the patient um, and, and doing everything as meticulous as you can. But it was really, it was Lister at the center teaching these younger men. And it was those younger men going out into the wider world that actually ended up changing and shifting the paradigm. Um, so he, he was a quiet figure. He was unlikely, um, an unlikely champion at a time when a lot of people were very boisterous. And as I said before, you know, the loudest person kind of won the debate. Um, but I think that's what's so magnificent, especially in this political climate, to have someone who is standing up for what he believes to be true, that he has the scientific evidence to believe that this is true, and just keeps uh, going in the face of all this uh, pushback. And you mentioned earlier that he has this microscope, um, yes. and he ends up developing this whole procedure. Um, how did he discover the whole concept of sepsis and the whole concept of infection, basically? Well, I mean, he didn't He didn't discover, I mean, sepsis was just everywhere, right? I mean, people were dying at such high frequencies in these hospitals that it was actually seriously suggested that the only way to um to solve the problem was to burn the hospitals down from time to time which i love this kind of image and we're certainly going to explore this idea in the movie um because you know you could just imagine like what what would that involve like every you know five years you just burn it down you build again um but that's how critical the situation had become and it was in a lot of surgeons and doctors didn't know what to do to control it if you were if you had a crowded ward and you had someone come on 
um, with a septic condition, it could spread within hours and patients could, could start dying within 24 hours. Um, so it was very serious. So he didn't discover septic conditions. They were just, they were there. They were always there. And it was very frustrating. His own mother ends up dying of erysipelas, one of the major septic conditions that he's fighting against in the hospitals. And so critical had the situation become that they actually coined a term called hospitalism, which referred to this idea that you were more likely to die as a result of being in the hospital than out. Um, and I'd like to also remind people that um, hospitals were very much places for the poor at this time. If you were wealthy, you would be treated at home. So your surgeon would come in. Um, there's a woman named Lucy Thurston who has a mastectomy pre-anesthetic, and she writes about it in the 1840s. And she says that her surgeon determined that the breast had to come off. And uh, she deci- he decided that he wasn't going to tell her the day that he was going to show up because he thought that would calm her more. I mean, for me, that would make me a lot more anxious. So he shows up to at her house house one day and he walks up the staircase into her bedroom and he opens his hand and he shows her the knife and he tells her to prepare her soul for death, um, which isn't very confidence inspiring. But this story really illustrates that wealthy people um, were certainly treated at home because there was this acknowledgement that hospitals were very dangerous. So you only went to the hospital if you were very poor and very desperate. Um, so that that is very different than um, how things work today. So uh, so, so the situation become critical. The microscope comes in when Lister was a little boy. His father um, worked a lot with the microscope. He he created various lenses for it, and so he grew up around this strange instrument. And I say strange because in medicine it was seen as very suspect. It, it a lot of surgeons and doctors believed that the microscope would make for lazy clinicians that they would stop using their eyes to diagnose patients and that they wouldn't trust their eyes as well. And beyond that. You know, the idea was, well, okay, you look through a microscope, you might see something interesting, but how is it going to change how we ultimately treat a patient, Um, which was a fair enough point at that time. So it was just seen as sort of a wasteful toy. But Lister grows up around it. And so he takes the microscope with him to medical school when he um, goes in the 1840s to UCL in, in London. And it's really this journey with this microscope looking at the different tissue from the patients who are suffering from septic conditions or die of septic conditions. And what he's seen under the microscope, then pairing that with what he learns when he reads Louis Pasteur's germ theory. And I like to say that the butchering art is a love story between science and medicine, because it's the it's one of the first instances, if not the first instance, where a scientific principle, which is germ theory, is applied to medical practice. So you get this uh, unition of, of science and medicine, which, of course, um, now exists today. Um, but, but yeah, it's the microscope is a very important part of the butchering art. And you mentioned that Lister was really building on the work of Louis Pasteur. Um, how did he build on that work? How are the two of them kind of connected together? Because they did meet and they were actually like, friends. Yeah, they did meet. And, and actually, um, for a while, I really wanted to write the book so that it would be sort of one chapter Lister, one chapter Pasteur, and then we see their stories kind of meet in the middle. But the the consensus um, at my publisher, which is FSG Scientific American, was that, and rightly so, I think, that Pasteur's story is a lot more um, known, and so that we really should just be focusing on Lister. Um, but Pasteur is told about, or sorry, Lister is told about Pasteur's work randomly by a colleague, and this is the key um, that he was looking for. So he begins developing antisepsis, but it's many years before uh, he, he, he doesn't reach out to Pasteur. He actually thinks that he's out of Pasteur's league and it would sort of be inappropriate to write this great scientist. And Pasteur 
ends up hearing about Lister's work sort of randomly. And, and the two finally do start exchanging letters. And what's amazing is later in life, uh, Lister goes to Paris to um, a ceremony to honor Pasteur. And he speaks for his old friend who can't speak at this time because Pasteur, I think, has had his second stroke. And, um, and he's being honored and he can't even stand without help. It's quite sad. And um, uh, Joseph Lister goes to honor his friend. And he says about Pasteur what could easily have been said about himself, that Pasteur's work had saved many people's lives. Um, but it really was sort of the meeting of science and medicine and this amazing ceremony. I believe there's a painting or um, it, it's, yeah, I think it's a painting of this moment. Um, but it, it, it was um, truly a friendship at the end of both those men's lives. What I really love is, is that in their, as you describe in their kind of introductory letters, they kind of fanboy over each other. Like, oh my <laughs> God, you're so cool. No, you're so cool. Oh, I know. I can't believe, Lister, that you could have done all that. I know. It's, it's, it's hilarious. Um, there was, there was some, I, I don't speak French. So also that was, um, limiting for primary source material with Pasteur. I had to rely on translations. And, and that's also why I decided, you know, he wasn't as prominent in the butchering art. Um, but he's obviously an incredible figure. And I think that I'd love to see that story come out a bit more, maybe in the movie. Um, adaptation of the book. And I also wanted to talk, we talked a little bit about Victoria and Pasteur, but I wanted to talk about one of the other people surrounding Lister. His mentor, Dr. Syme, was called the Napoleon of Surgery, which is amazing. But I was especially interested in Syme's daughter, Agnes. And we mentioned that Lister married her. Um, and there's not really a lot in the book about her. What do we know about her? Well, that, that goes back to the whole, you know, his, it, this sort of these gaps in their marriage, um, these things that I would love to have known, like why they didn't have children, just the hints, the glimpses of, of these kinds of, um, uh, answers that I, I was seeking. Um, but she's a very quiet per- woman. And what I love is that when Lister goes up to Edinburgh and he meets Syme, uh, the Napoleon of surgery, who is also the cousin of Robert Liston, um, Robert Liston being 6'2", and Syme being quite a bit shorter, hence the name Napoleon of surgery. And he was very, um, he was a, he was a very fiery man as well, just like Liston. And um, he was uh, fearless. He would perform some of these operations. One uh, operation he performed was on a man who had this enormous uh, tumor growing on his jaw in the 1820s. I think it was 1828. And um, this man actually got goes to see Robert Liston because Robert Liston had just made a name for himself by removing a 45 pound scrotal tumor without anesthetic in under four minutes. And the, and the patient survived. So this guy Penman, who has this facial tumor decides I'm going to go to Robert Liston. I'm going to ask for this uh, tumor to be removed by him. But Robert Liston refuses, which is tantamount to a death sentence from a surgeon like Robert Liston. So this guy Penman travels up to Edinburgh and he goes to see Syme, the Napoleon of surgery and Syme agrees to do it. And for you know, 30 minutes or so, Syme cuts away bit by bit at this facial tumor without any anesthetic. And the man survives. And um, there's actually a photo of him later in life. And he looks a little odd, um, but you wouldn't necessarily know he had, he had undergone this really um, horrific um, surgery. So it's, it's pretty amazing to think of. Syme has many children. Um, some of these children also um, died quite early from childhood illnesses, but he's, he's very, uh, um, Victorian. He's got a big family. Um, and he has another daughter as well, who's more beautiful. But Lister, being the Quaker and being the quiet, somber figure, is instantly attracted to Agnes and actually notes to his father in a letter, it's her plainness that sort of attracts him, which I find 
kind of delightful about Lister. And, um, and they fall in love. And what was meant to be a very short trip to Edinburgh ends up being a very long um, extended stay because he marries her. And then he ends up going to Glasgow. And this is really important to Lister's story, because if he hadn't stayed in Scotland, the story would have been very different. Um, Scotland, for various reasons, which I talk about in the book, is very is much more scientifically minded in medicine. Um, they're doing a lot more experiments. They're much more open to Lister's ideas when um, he, he starts to develop them. So if Lister had gone back to London as he intended, I don't know if this story would have ended quite the same way. So Agnes is very much a part um, of his, his sort of fate. Um, so to speak. And um, what we know about her, well, like I said, she was um, very much in the background, uh, transcribing his notes, helping with his experiments. Um, and she was very much a scientific partner, although I don't um, develop this a lot in the book. Um, she's fascinating from that sense. Um, and I, w- I would love to know more about her story, but it's just one of those things, again, that we only really know her story through the men around her, through the letters of Lister. Um, and she's she's kind of a shadowy figure, but I suspect a very important figure in his life. Well, I'm glad she was there because it is it is very much a, a kind of high power, high class British white dudes kind of book. <laughs> yes, I know. It's it's not uh it's not hidden figures, you know, like it's not one of those stories where you have this amazing um, you know, women coming to the forefront. And unfortunately, you know, it's it's very difficult to I would love to find um the woman in the nineteenth or a, the eighteenth or nineteenth century um who was shifting the paradigm. And maybe I will find her at some point. Um, but it's much harder to find those people because they're not as well documented. And the same with the patients themselves. Remember, again, that they were poor um, going into these hospitals. So we only have their experiences typically through the voices of the surgeons who are cutting into them and the case files about them. We don't necessarily have their words about how they felt or the terror um, of the situation or whether they were even given much of a choice in how they were treated, which I suspect they weren't. Um, so this is this is the problem when you're writing um, a historical book. But yeah, I would love to to find that, um, that woman um, to write that story at some point in my career, um, because that would be amazing. But it's going to take a lot of digging into into the archives. But I hope even though this is like a male white Victorian story that it's it's such an important um, paradigm. And it's it's such an important story. Um, I hope people will, um, will enjoy it. And yeah, I mean, you mentioned it's it's fun. It's a it's a very fun, very informative book. It is a little stomach turning in places, (laughs) even for me. I have a very strong stomach. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't read it over breakfast is what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. What do you want people to kind of take away? Well, that's that's a great question. Um, Because, you know, I tell people you should read the butchering art for many reasons. One of them should just be purely enjoyment. I love to immerse people in this world um, that's so different from ours, but yet familiar in, in surprising ways. So I want people to read it. I, it should be read like a novel. It should flow like a novel. Um, so you should just read it and enjoy it and gather all these gruesome facts that you can horrify people with at cocktail parties. Um, but also, I hope that people pick up the butchering art and they don't just look back at the past and think, well, how could people have thought that? I, th- I hope that they realize that science 
and medicine is always in flux and what we know today isn't going to be what we necessarily know tomorrow. And that sometimes enemies are, our biggest enemies come from within, within the scientific and medical community, because certainly the biggest pushback that Lister received was from his own colleagues. So I think, especially for people who work in science and medicine, we have to keep an open mind when these new ideas come along, because there's never been an instance where a paradigm has been shattered, that there hasn't been resistance within the community. And of course, like some of that resistance is, is rightly so. That's part of the process um, of questioning and uh, pushing back. But I do think sometimes it can hinder progress. And you mentioned this a little bit throughout our interview, but there's going to be a movie, which is <laughs> awesome. What kind of movie is it going to be? Well, uh, hopefully a, a full feature film at this point. So um, I, my friend Alex Anstey, who's a brilliant director, um, he, I, I came to him one day, I said, could you do a book trailer for me? And it just got out of control. Um, we got actors and we got some amazing talent um, to help shoot it. He called in every favor. And we created this sort of I think it's about six minute um, book trailer uh, in in the old operating theater in London, which is an amazing space. And we recreated a pre-anesthetic and pre-antiseptic surgery with a young Lister in attendance. And uh, we had so much fun doing it. And uh, that was the moment where we got together and, and said, well, let's try to get the funding. Let's try to do the film. One of our friends, um, Lori Korngeibel, is a producer in L.A., so she's helping us. Uh, we've started to get uh, commitments from investors and I think uh, the next step is going to be um, approaching some actors. And it's really fun. This book is sort of my baby. As a writer, you can sell rights off to production companies or to studios. But I really want to be creatively involved in this, um, especially since, um, as I alluded to before, this book was sort of born out of a desperate situation in my own life. Um, so I, I feel very like connected to Lister's story. I want to see it told right. You can see the book trailer on my YouTube channel, Under the Knife. Um, I show it on my book tour um, and my book talks and I've had three men faint so far uh, while watching it so you know you've been warned if you go and watch it um, it is it is pretty gruesome but uh, hopefully delightful to see that kind of era reconstructed well Lindsay thank you so much for spending time with us yeah thank you so much for having me it was really fun we've linked to information about Lindsay Fitzharris and her book The Butchering Art Joseph Lister's Quest to Transform the Grizzly World of Victorian Medicine at our website scienceforthepeople.ca we've also got a link for the trailer for the movie next we'll be talking with Nils Hansen about the other huge revolution that changed surgery in the 1800s the development of anesthesia you don't want to sleep through this one I promise stay tuned while we take a break, we thought we'd recommend another podcast that you might enjoy. If you like science for the people, we think you'll also like Story Collider. Story Collider is about the human stories behind the science. Each week, tune in to hear scientists, science writers, comedians, and more tell stories that make you laugh, cry, and think. I've even been on Story Collider myself, talking about a time my own life collided with science in, honestly, a pretty tragic way. But this week, I'd like to recommend Story Collider's episode on women in science in honor of March as Women's History Month. Listen to Allison Williams and Sarah Meyer talk about the challenges they've faced as women in STEM and how they went forth and did science anyway. Their stories were infuriating, stunning, and inspiring. I can't recommend them enough. Check out Story Collider wherever you get our podcast. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire. We've heard now about the development of the germ theory of disease. Understanding why wounds become infected has helped save millions of lives. Before it, surgery was a court of last resort. Anytime someone cut into the body, they were risking infection and death. 
But there was another region that surgery was something people tried to avoid. And that was because that until about 1847, not only did the patient risk infection, they were required to be awake as their own legs were cut off or their eyes were taken out. Sometimes they even had to participate in their own surgery by holding certain positions. All of that changed with one of the biggest developments in medicine, the discovery of anesthesia. Here to talk with us about anesthesia is Nils Hansen, a historian of medicine at the Heinrich Heine University in Dusseldorf, Germany. Hi, Nils. Hi there. Now, let's talk a little bit about anesthesia, which was if, if sterile surgery was kind of one of the two big developments in surgery in the 19th century, anesthesia was the other one. Um, and people have been searching for something to kill pain since we've had pain. So all the time, <laughs> lots of things have been tried. Uh, some of the obvious ones was alcohol. Um, used to try and kill pain and sedate people as far back as ancient Mesopotamia, but it doesn't really work really well because people get alcohol poisoning. And before they get alcohol poisoning, you never really know if you're going to get a nice drunk, an angry drunk, <laughs> a strong drunk. Alcohol is, is not reliable. But let's fast forward to the middle of the 19th century and the advent of nitrous oxide, which people probably know about as laughing gas. Can you talk a little bit about Joseph Priestley and Humphrey Davy? What did they do? Yes, uh, perhaps just, just a brief note to say something about the broader picture of surgery during that time. Uh, as you mentioned, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century appears, I think, from, from today's perspective, at least, as a, a very dynamic uh, era for the development of modern surgery. You mentioned uh, antisepsis and asepsis. Hemostasis was also, you can refer it to as a revolution in surgery, but then also uh, anesthesia. And uh, even earlier, uh, nitrous oxide was, was uh, um, uh, is, is credited to, to Joseph Presley, the discovery of, of nitrous oxide already in the, in the 19th century. He was an uh, English philosopher, he was a chemist, he was a, even a political theorist, so a man with, with many uh, interests. And uh, he has been credited then with the discovery of, of oxygen, uh, although other scholars have also strong, strong claims to, to that discovery. And I think that's like a pattern also when we talk about the history of anesthesia. There are many scientific priority disputes. It's hard to say who discovered what, when, and why. But Priestley, Joseph Priestley, is also credited credited for the discovery of nitrous oxide. I think it was in the 1770s. It's uh, also known today as uh, laughing gas. And the story uh, or the therapeutic story of nitrous oxide has strong links to another scientist, Humphrey Davy, who published on nitrous oxide, uh, oxide in the late 18th century. And he described two major effects uh, when you inhale um, this gas. On the one hand, there is uh, euphoria, perhaps even some mild hallucinations. And on the other hand, uh, the pain-killing uh, effects. And Davy uh, suggested that inhalation of, of nitrous oxide during uh, surgical operations might be would be helpful, but it would take uh, an, a while before it was used on a on a larger scale. But he at least proposed proposed opportunity in one of his uh, books. 
One of the and things I, was, I found was, very interesting yeah. was that nitrous oxide quickly became recreational. Uh, people had parties and would <laughs> inhale nitrous oxide and, and get high because it is what we call a uh, dissociative anesthetic. Yeah. And, and I think there's also an interesting uh, uh, side note to, to, to that story. Like often uh, well, popular phenomena in, in medicine um, uh, uh, are somehow reflected in popular culture. And I, 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 I apparently they, um, nitrous oxide also was a phenomenon in the British upper class in the early 19th century. And there are also some films titled laughing gas or, or, or where, where the narrative, um, includes parties on with, with laughing gas in the early 20th century. And I also think there's one movie, uh, featuring, uh, Charlie Chaplin. So, so that's a fascinating topic. And it's not really in use today, nitrous oxide. Uh, not, uh, not, uh, to that extent, like, for 150 years ago. Right. It's still used at the dentist. You can get it at the dentist. And it's also yeah. used as a carrier because, because it's a gas, they can use it as a carrier for other more modern anesthetics. Um, but in the realm of other super fun things we tried for the sake of science, um, cocaine was tried for anesthesia by Auguste Beer. And he yeah. gave it intrathecally, which is an injection in the spine, and that's the way epidurals are given today. Can you talk about cocaine? <laughs> yes, cocaine is actually uh, has a long story. It's a, it's a, it's, a, it's an old um, drug in the history of, of uh, anesthesiology. Uh, think for for example on the uh, the Inca. Uh, the Incas, they chew, chewed coca leaves uh, a very long time ago. But during the 19th century, there is one um, um, quite interesting um, uh, uh, was one interesting presentation by the Viennese ophthalmologist Carl Koller. He experimented with cocaine um, in, uh, in, in New York and presented uh, his um, Findings at a conference in Heidelberg in 1884, and after that, there were plenty of of uh, scientists and physicians who experimented with um, uh, with cocaine. One U.S. Uh, example is Hal uh, William Stewart Halstead in in Baltimore. You can see uh, in the the series The Nick, <laughs> there is one character who I think is partly based on the biography of, of William Stewart Halstead, where he exper experimented with with uh, cocaine. But talking about August Beer, a German professor of surgery, he became famous worldwide for his experiment of of spinal anesthesia. And the funny thing about that is he, he did a self-experiment in 1898. Uh, he injected a uh, small dose of cocaine into the fluid surrounding the, the spinal cord. And um, he got his assistant to test it on, on himself, but it didn't <laughs> quite work out. So he then tested it on his assistant, August Hildebrandt, and then it uh, worked. And how he, he would, he, he, 
had to to show that the the, the effects of this experiment. So he hammered <laughs> and even burned his assistant. It's in the protocol. It so also says that he pulled out his uh, pubic hair, yes! pubic hairs of the <laughs> of the assistant, and apparently uh, it worked. So that nowadays, poor guy. <laughs> uh, he is credited for having introduced the spinal anesthesia into clinical uh, practice. Well, a spectacular example. Cocaine, it, it doesn't really work that well. <laughs> I mean, it does work, um, but you know, one of the problems of cocaine is that it is not a sedative; it is a stimulant. So yeah. <laughs> you yeah. you don't feel pain, but you feel really good and yeah, yeah. very awake. Um, and so we don't actually use it anymore, but we do still use it locally. It's very good for a local anesthesia. We actually still use it for local anesthesia for things like eye surgery. Yes, that what was what uh, Carl Collar did in, in the late 19th century in the eight, 1880s. And you mentioned to me earlier that August Beer almost won the Nobel Prize for using <laughs> cocaine on his poor assistant, but he didn't. Why didn't he win it? <laughs> Yes, as as I mentioned earlier, Ambir is, is also a good expa uh, example for prior, uh, scientific priority disputes. Uh, one of his uh, former teachers, Heinrich Quinke of Kiel University in Germany, had done uh, lumbar lumbar puncture, so that had some similarities with August Beer's experiment. And also, there was a U.S. U.S. physician. Uh, James Corning, who also had done similar experiments. So the Nobel Committee couldn't really say, is he the first one uh, to do something like that? Or, or did he get the ID from, from other people in the scientific uh, community? Man, what do you got to do to win a Nobel Prize? <laughs> <laughs> um, now we get to William Morton, who is probably the most famous name in the development of anesthesia. If, if you know a name in the development of anesthesia, you probably know William Morton. Um, and he apparently found out about ether um, as an anesthetic because he was a big dude in ether parties in the 19th century. Um, he was, uh, he and several of his compatriots were ether party boys, which I think I want on a t-shirt now. Um, can you tell me what Morton contributed to anesthesia? Yeah, then we have to travel back in time. We had Collar in 1884 and August Beer in 1898. But already in 1846, William Morton introduced the use of ether as an anesthetic. There is one um, anecdote. Uh, well, it's... It, uh, Allegedly, he, he stood before before a large um, audience and uh, had a colleague with him, uh, Warren, a surgeon. And Martin administered ether to to uh, one patient and surgeon. This surgeon, Warren, could then remove a tumor from his neck. And uh, then the story goes, a new era dawned. <laughs> uh, allegedly, and that's often quoted, um, Warren immediately after the operation said that gentlemen this is no humbug <laughs> and that is uh, uh well there's hardly any uh paper on the history of of uh, anesthesia where where these words are not quoted and one of the interesting things you sent me um a paper that we're going to link to in the show notes um that's also by Thomas Schlich about how anesthesia patients before 
not anesthesia patients, before the advent of anesthesia, patients had to be kind of active participants in their own surgeries, um, which could be good. You know, they could hold certain positions, they could keep an eye on their doctors and make sure the doctors were not, I don't know, getting distracted. Um, and Thomas Schlick argues that the advent of anesthesia fundamentally changed the doctor-patient relationship. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, and that's uh, linked a bit to to the the previous uh, question. Then, before anesthesia, patients experience surgeons surgery in in full consciousness, <laughs> and they took an active uh, they were an active part in the uh, uh, operation. Schlich describes that they should hold uh, the surgeon might ask them to hold their body in in certain positions, and so so the operations were were hard work for both the surgeon and for the patient and at the same time there are some some uh, uh, there are documented uh, operations where the patient when when the uh, uh, operation was ongoing they could communicate and the people the, the patient could even sing or or chatter or or smoke during surgery but i think the case is that they they struggled and, and suffered <laughs> suffered a lot um, yeah, I was going to say probably the ones where they were chatting and smoking were not full amputations. <laughs> no, that, that, that's true. <laughs> uh, but with the introduction of, of anesthesia in the mid-1840s, uh, surgeons could then manipulate body parts and structures in a way that allowed surgery to uh, advance. So in practice, uh, the lack of cooperation from the unconscious patients could also pose new problems. So now the surgeon um, could not get any help from the patient any longer. And uh, in that way, uh, uh, the anesthesia changed the relationship between the surgeon and the, and the patient. There were some profound effects. On the other hand, it's probably a very good thing. I was thinking of um, a book that I read called Dr. Mutter's Marvels about um, Mutter, who was a big uh, person in the field of plastic surgery um, in the early uh, 1800s. And um, he was a big person in plastic surgery before anesthesia. And he was thrilled by the development of anesthesia. Uh, because before when he had to do things like um, repair cleft palates, um, he would have to go and for several weeks massage the palate of the person he was going to operate on until they lost their gag reflex so oh, that no. he could operate because otherwise you'd be operating and the patient would throw up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's bad, <laughs> very bad. Yeah. Um, but do you think uh, Schlich actually has some interesting ideas that maybe he kind of suggested in his paper that maybe patients have become almost too passive. Do you think that's become kind of a theme? Um, I'm, I'm, um, I, I think the, the interesting, the interesting point in his paper is that if you introduce technologies in clinical practice, it all, or they often, uh, really change the relationship between uh, the physician and the patient. And um, 
and I think this is a, a good uh, example or a very clear example of, of how that relationship uh, changes. But I think also we should keep in mind when we when we look back at these 150 years that we think that the uh, introduction of, of um, anesthesia uh, today perceived as revolutions, but back then 150 years there was were not that there were also many other accounts of, of uh, huge problems uh, associated to to the anesthesia like like uh, death and, and and other other things side effects include death yeah side effects yes well nils thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us to go with another surgery pun you helped us stitch together the narrative <laughs> of anesthesia thank you very much <laughs> thank you We've linked to more information about general anesthesia and Nils Hansen's work at scienceforthepeople.ca. There, we've also got links to Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes, where you can tell us all about the new iTunes app and how it keeps deleting your podcasts, or at least it kept deleting mine, and tell us that you like us. You really like us. Or you hate us. You can tell us that, too. We've also got links to our Patreon page, where for a few small dollars per month, you can support us and get cool access to things like extra content. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at Skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 